You are listening to the Impact Lenders Podcast, the podcast for people and institutions using lending for good. Welcome to the show. Hello, this is Peter Schaefing of High Impact Financial Analysis, your host for the Impact Lenders Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Elodie Baccaro and Brian Nagendro of Living Cities, a foundation involved in impact lending, research, and policy. A few years ago, Living Cities embarked on a journey to start confronting race in their work head-on, and they decided that to do that, they first needed to look inward and work on the way that their organization addresses or fails to address issues of race internally. Today, they'll talk through that journey, and I hope it provides a lot of inspiration and ideas for your own work. The more I've learned about this, the more I've been impressed with how transparent, honest, and dedicated they've been to this effort. I really want to encourage our listeners to check out their report on this initiative on Medium. And if you like this episode, you might also want to listen to an episode from a few months back, episode three on inclusion in impact lending. Both can be found on our website, www.impactlenderspodcast.com. And now onto the show. Today I have with me Elodie Baccaro and Brian Nagendra from Living Cities. Brian is the Assistant Director of the Catalyst Impact Funds at Living Cities, and Elodie is the Chief Operating Officer. So I will start just with uh, an opportunity for both of you to introduce yourselves, and maybe one of you can tell us a bit about what Living Cities does. Sure. So I'm Elodie Baccaro, Chief Operating Officer at Living Cities. I've been at Living Cities for just over seven years now in a variety of roles and through our uh, growth and evolution and before that, have had a career mostly in affordable housing and urban development. Okay. Um, Living Cities itself is a 27-year-old collaborative of foundations and financial institutions um, with a mission of closing racial income and wealth gaps in American cities. Got it. Okay. And Brian? I've been with Living Cities about four years. Uh, in previous, my experience has both been on... Um, urban policy side affordable, and affordable housing as well. And mm-hmm. uh, previously worked at a CDFI, uh, okay. City Percent Enterprises. Great. Um, yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, you guys just do a very broad base of work. I think you do you know, some research, uh, you certainly fund institutions as well. You work with the CDFI industry. Um, Brian, I pay attention to what you're doing on LinkedIn because you always lead me to interesting things. Are you guys doing something with cryptocurrencies these days? Did I not see that? <laughs> Uh, I think we're not. Uh, <laughs> I scare all my risk officers yeah. everywhere. Yeah, don't start that rumor. Okay. We are originating out of our new fund, uh, and so we are deal sourcing. And anyone who's been involved in that knows that uh, you turn over all the stones. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, that can be edited out if you'd like, Brian. I don't need to leave that for you. <laughs> totally uh, fine. Um, yeah. I have. Everyone, I now have an opinion on coin offerings. It's very. Uh, I appreciate who posted that. Okay. Good. Good. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye to see what you guys do next. Um, but today we're we're talking about something that you guys are working on internally in order to improve the work that you do externally. So, Elodie, you mentioned your mission is closely tied to, to racial equity. And a few years ago, Living Cities started this internal initiative to really think about and examine how uh, structural race, racism informs your work and informs the way that your organization is set up and how people within the institution deal with racial issues. And I think it's really an instructive kind of case study to look at, you know, how deep you can go on this and, and hear from you guys what the really important outcomes are and the challenges you faced along the way. 
So that's what we'll be digging into today. So uh, I'd love to hear first, kind of what were the origins of this process? And can you just explain in general, what, what is the process that we're talking about? What have you taken the organization through the last few years? Sure. So um, Living City's racial equity journey really started in earnest about six years ago um, in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin shooting. Um, there were a lot of conversations among staff and sort of people uh, challenged by what was happening in the world around us. And I think the dissonance of being in an organization that was theoretically working to improve outcomes for low-income people, but at that point was working in a very race-neutral way and um, where conversations even about race felt um, discouraged mm -hmm. or like they shouldn't be had. Yeah. And so that's really sort of how the conversations started. And in the early days, really about asking ourselves that question, um, can we talk about race? Is that okay? Because it seemingly isn't in the way we talk about our work externally. It's not something we really pay a lot of attention to in, mm -hmm. in sort of as we're designing programs. And yet when you think about low-income people in cities, um, who are those low-income people in cities? And, yeah. and can we be more clear about why they're poor and, and what we would like to be focusing on as we think about how we can best contribute to, to helping. Yeah. And so it took a while. Um, it was not, you know, this is not a, a, a muscle that, that um, a lot of people or organizations have, right, to normalize conversations about race and racial equity. Um, mm -hmm. Even those of us, those of us who are sort of very well-intentioned and um, committed, it's, it's an uncomfortable it's conversation. That just, be very yeah, it's just something that's not done yeah. often. Mm -hmm. And so um, it had its bumps in those mm -hmm. early days. And I think um, including but not limited to, you know, a little bit of or a lot of in some cases kind of defensiveness and yeah. sensitivities around, you know, no, but I'm not racist, yeah. um, which I think I is often the, the starting <laughs> yeah. place. Mm -hmm. um, so in the early days, um, we, we kind of took it on and sort of thought about, well, why does it feel like you can't talk about race? Of course you can talk about race. And we ended up having, uh, you know, doing a lot of, I think, important early work. But now, in retrospect, work that was kind of tinkering on the edges of, of really uh, embedding racial equity fully and deeply into what we were doing. And so at that point, we started to name race. We started to be less race neutral in our communications, in our conversations, did an audit of all of our programs, including our, um, our funds at that point, sort of saying, how can we better embed a racial equity lens into this work? We did training for our staff. We did brown bags. Um, and they were all important steps, but they were still sort of at the outermost layer of, mm -hmm. of the work that needed to be done, which, of course, at the time we didn't realize. Yeah. Since then, as we've um, continued to learn and grow, it's become really clear that this work to be done with accountability and to be done well needs to actually really start from the inside out. So going out there and sort of telling all your grantees or your partners what they can and should be doing without having done your own introspection and, and held a mirror up to yourself about your own behaviors and how oppression shows up um, at a, all kinds of different levels within yeah. and outside organizations was a little bit disingenuous and was causing a lot of dissonance for our own staff. Yeah. And yeah. so we kind of had a 2.0 of our racial equity journey start, I would say, 18 months ago, two years ago, 
where we were ready to acknowledge that and to take our work to the next level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is an organizational thing, but it really requires your staff to, to take a very personal inventory, right? So how, how do you kind of start that conversation with staff and how does that uh, progress? Yes, it is um, and has been a very personal journey for uh, all of us and, um, and a very painful one at different points. And I think as COO, one that I feel a lot of responsibility for holding people through, you know, not shying away from the fact that it's hard and it's personal, but that that's a lot to ask of your employees. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we think that it's necessary in order to have any ability to actually achieve the results that we want to achieve in the world. But again, it's not something that, you, that is typically sort of asked of people in the workplace. Um, and it is hard in a lot of ways. You know, I think the other thing we have to realize is that it was hard in a lot of ways before, just mostly for people of color that mm. were having to work in an environment that was more focused on and a culture that was more focused on, on maintaining some of the norms that are part of kind of white institutional culture without even realizing it. And so what we've been trying to do is name some of those things and more than anything to normalize some of these conversations and take them out of an intellectual space and into a little bit more of a, of a heart space um, in various ways. And, And one of the ways that we started off doing that in addition to normalizing conversations was just a, a lot of intentionality around individual um, competency building and developing a shared language and a shared analysis um, and understanding of history. And so yeah. we we made the decision uh, just over a year ago or a year and a half ago to send all of our staff members through um, undoing racism workshops, which are two-day workshops, very intense, but critical to having that shared language and shared analysis upon which we could build together with an understanding that nobody is the expert in this, we're struggling together um, through how you create a culture in an organization where everybody can thrive and where we have the competencies to do the work that we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and you mentioned there's some, you know, before you started this work and undoubtedly to some extent continues and it's something you're working on, but what are examples of things in the workplace that, uh, you know, represent that kind of structural racism that you're trying to dismantle that aren't, you know, readily visible to a, a majority, you know, a member of the majority. I'll say as someone who is part of that sort of stepping in and, uh, you know, we have, we've worked at different organizations. We have maybe had, or I've had conversations about race, about structural racism in other organizations, what really changed was starting with staff and the starting with where we are um, mm-hmm. and not making it programmatic and having the patience for, to not be a program or a some part of the work plan yet yeah um, so some of the ways that to, to answer your question that uh, shows up is I'm uncomfortable is this the right time to talk about this are we talking about this right way are we being inclusive enough if I feel uncomfortable something is wrong mm-hmm. and speaking of that I mean that's we that's in a room that is a professional setting you're talking usually you might have already been maybe in culture to talk about it in an academic way about policy, about overall effects, talking about redlining, talking about um, you want to go back to homesteading act, like depending on how far you go back. And so bringing it to a personal aspect, being like, I don't feel comfortable. Yeah. And I'm going to react in that space and shut down the conversation. So even if you want to be an ally, sometimes you are not. 
being that. And that's, that's a hard place to get to. Yeah. Um, it's a hard thing to call out in a meeting with a bunch of other people at your corporate retreat. Yeah. So you're saying the way that you're talking about an issue that has a, certainly a racial background like that, like you're talking about redline, redlining, you can be doing that from a place where you're trying to address, address it in a positive way, but the way you're approaching it might actually be problematic and might actually be causing you know, pain or injury to people who are not in the majority. Yeah, and I think that that's a critical point and one that we talk about a lot, which is that there's a big difference between intention and impact. And we mm-hmm. assume good intentions of yeah. everybody on yeah. our team. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's always positive impact. Um, and in, in many cases, we are sometimes um, perpetuating oppressions within the organization itself or perpetuating pain in ways that we don't even realize. And so some of it is about us being able to see things we couldn't see before, name things we couldn't name before. And I think to Brian's point um, about the, the sort of discomfort we started and why we believe that sort of normalizing conversations um, is a critical piece of this is that um, we started in the early days where the tolerance for conversations, like when, when anybody said white people or, or white institutional culture or structural racism or anti-blackness, it was super uncomfortable and, yeah. and people would yeah. tense up and, and inevitably, or, or even, even words that, you know, like sometimes when you talk about community and the communities we're serving and just sometimes people, the, the words that are used or the way people talk about certain groups or don't talk about certain groups were having impact. And, mm-hmm. and yet we are, we were very um, sort of stuck in this place where discomfort, we, we mistook discomfort for not being productive um, and, and then it's kind of like, well, who determines what's okay. productive yeah. and what's yeah. comfortable um, and for who? And I think in that process, we had to, we've had to, and we're continuing to work on this because it's hard, get more comfortable with engaging sort of through, not around conflict when mm-hmm. it comes up and sitting with that discomfort, understanding that it's part of working towards a different way. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned getting to that that point of discomfort and, you know, an easy out is, well, this isn't a productive conversation, you know, this isn't getting that loan closed or this isn't doing, you know, whatever else you have on your plate today. Totally. And you mentioned you have, you know, you did a two-day workshop on, was it anti-racism? What what was the? Undoing racism. Undoing racism. By the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Got it. So, so those are real time commitments and they are real time commitments for an institution to go through. So no doubt you need the management buy-in. So let's talk a little bit more directly about what, what you're hoping to get out of this and what you have gotten out of it, you know, both in the sense of how it has improved your culture, but also how it has improved, you know, the workflow or, or not necessarily workflow, but the work that you're doing. So I think it's really critical what you just said about management buy-in. Um, it was imperative for our leadership and our management to not just be on board with this uh, in terms of kind of signing off on the resources, but actually to be doing our own, and, and I'll speak personally, my own personal work mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and understanding that, which I didn't in the first couple of years. I thought I did <laughs> in the first couple of years, but I didn't, which is that I had to do my own personal work. I had to be on my own journey as an individual um, as well as us being on a journey as an organization. And if I wasn't doing that, if I was thinking about it 
more as a kind of check the box. Yep, let's do those trainings. Let's do these things. And we weren't going to be able to get where we needed to go because I have positional power in the organization and I needed yeah. to understand that and to, to understand how I could um, deploy it and, and um, use it uh, to support this ongoing work, which is an enormous commitment of time and resources, more than we ever anticipated going in, but mm -hmm. we've gotten much more out of it than we ever could have anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, what are your thoughts in terms of what you've gotten out of it, you know, personally, if you'd like to address that or institutionally? So I think that personally, being able to say meaningfully that I am a Sri Lankan Tamil born in the U.S. and, you know, upper certain age who lives in a certain neighborhood, sort of bringing that in and that being not uh, a silent piece of the work I do, but someplace that I need to both disclaim but also own in terms of I am both in a position of privilege and power and recreating mm -hmm. some of the conditions that we are, you know, we think are aberrant, as well as uh, in a in a place in that that um, I'm not I'm struggling with some of the different uh, different pressures as well mm -hmm. around sure. around race around yeah. uh, what the how those things show up and so um, I never thought that all that race critical theory I did in college would come up at work <laughs> and be extremely helpful. Um, yeah, I, I will say it because when we've spoken about it, you just sound so well informed. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I not know all this stuff? <laughs> And, but you started in college. Okay, so that was a good head start. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had, uh, I had uh, different interests, but bring, being able to bring that to work is and yeah, actually yeah, use that, use true. that, um, what is uh, sort of a power analysis, structural power analysis, mm -hmm. just honestly to get through what is have been some hard conversations. Yeah, um, has been engaging, has been meaningful. Um, I've been seeing how on a team that's dynamic that invests in people giving roles for folks that aren't senior to have authority and mm -hmm. everyone has different authority in this conversation has yeah. been kind of amazing to see hmm. and and the space for people to grow in that so i have been <laughs> past some joint meetings or even that two-day training i've been counseled by people who are 10 years younger than me who've kind of picked me up in a way that i didn't expect i 100 percent needed mm -hmm. and uh, i have been so appreciative of yeah. Um, yeah. And and so those are just different ways that um, going through my own journey, uh, building vocabulary, learning about this as we're discussing it. And then, you know, programmatically, the imperative is just clear. We can't end economic inequality without addressing rich disparities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we, it's, we, we can't do it. Yeah. It's, it's an undercurrent in all the work or maybe not all the work, but a very large percentage of the work that impact lenders do is how to, is trying to undo the, the work of structural racism. And by calling it to the fore, you know, you're actually, like you said, naming it, you're giving yourself the opportunity to kind of address it head on. There's a, there's a line, uh, Howardson says you can't be neutral on a moving train. And so we are in a philanthropic organization that uh, is supported by other institutions and we are in a position of power as well as the fact that we're in a sort of trying to influence other institutions to change, to change how they're allocating capital, how they're investing, how they're supporting people. It's uh, in that train that's moving, you know, we're part of recreating some things that we can't see. And so as a team, as people from different levels and perspectives, um, sort of we're all biased. That's yeah. where we start from. And so understanding 
um, how to work in that, as opposed to assuming that there's some objectivity where I can do the right intervention and do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think that the, it's not, I mean, I think that naming it has been critical, right? Like naming these things again and again and building all of our competencies to um, see and name things that we couldn't see or name before, didn't have the language for, didn't have the awareness of, had blind spots and continue to have. I do not want at all to give the impression that we have this figured out because we don't and it's ongoing work. Um, And as you know, one of our colleagues, um, Nadia Usu has been a a real leader internally for us says that this is a daily practice. And so we're continuing to practice it. But I think the more, you know, to Brian's point, the more that we've practiced it, the more we're able to bring that lens on so many different levels than we could ever have anticipated before. And so we can look at and examine kind of power structures or dynamics as they show up in our own own organization. But we can also look at that in our lending. Who are we lending to? We can also look at it in our grant making and how is that showing up in how we are a grant maker and and sort of the power dynamic inherent in that. And uh, the analysis allows us to continue to push ourselves to work at the deepest root cause. And so that is really hard and you know we've been in recent conversations and brian will talk more about this i'm sure but about what does that mean in our lending and how (laughs) how do we apply this um but it forces us to have the highest and best contributions we can with a limited amount of resources human and financial and to think about what is the influence we have what are the opportunities we have where can we help kind of organize others around this work which we think is just fundamental to what we're all well-intentioned people trying to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Brian, why don't you talk about that a second? How has this informed your your lending in particular? So, we relaunched our uh, capital strategy in the fall um, after sort of in the context of uh, Living Cities, which is a learning organization. We're sort of continuously evolving as we are um, both pushing towards our results. And so, we relaunched the strategy mm-hmm. having talked with it through our, with her investors uh, in the fall and then sort of publicly uh, sharing it early this year. And we are blessed with investors that are, are with us through changes, uh, not, yep. not silent through those changes, I will say that much, um, <laughs> but with us. And a lot of the questions were, okay, well, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, is that a different frame for the ex- same existing lending? Is that uh, pushing the bars in different ways? Is that how the investments in the teams are working rather than what the particular investments are? Mm-hmm. So we currently have about two thirds of our uh, of the last fund we raised. So uh, Living Cities manages two structured debt funds. Uh, the the most recent that we raised in 2015 is a 36.9 million dollar fund, and uh, okay. we're, the remaining two thirds that we're deploying towards this strategy. And so we're sort of actively in in bringing pipeline, looking through investments, uh, shaping, and hopefully pushing ourselves to share as we go what that what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's both been at the in investments, it's been uh, the governance of the investments, how the decisions are made, who the management team and and the folks that are uh, running the either the investment funds or the direct companies that we're investing in direct organizations, or finally how by process connection with community connection with the and sort of end recipient uh, who is impacted uh, all of those layers of thinking about where where uh, racial equity shows up, where mm-hmm. we're tracking, where we're pushing, and sort of what is our sort of impact portfolio yeah. on those layers. 
So a very rigorous look at the way that grant or grantees or borrowers are deploying the funds, not just in the sense of what outcomes are they producing, but what are the means they're using and what are the externalities that those means are creating? Right. Trying to think about it holistically. And, and yeah. uh, to Elodie's point about grounding and being humble, uh, definitely having better questions and running through our yeah. investments this way and seeing we ultimately are making capital that we uh, that is an investment that uh, we are looking for uh, repayment of. So how does that how do those things work and what can we demand and what can we what are we making sure that we're not setting up an investment, a team to commit something that they're not committed to? So that's a yeah. fit issue. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and then once we're engaged and committed in terms of committed capital, um, how we operate together and push when we don't see data being reported in a disaggregated way, when we don't see the kind of commitment, uh, the commitment to some of the goals we had you know, originated with. Yeah. So how yeah. we approach that. Got it. Well, yeah, well, I I'm, appreciate you bringing this to a close with that look at exactly how it's informing your lending. And I'll be interesting to, it'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop as you keep, keep going with this process internally. I do want to point out that Living Cities has put out a lot of information just recently in a lot of kind of different forms of media, giving a look at what has happened internally and getting different people's perspectives on that. It's all up on Medium. So could one of you tell us a little bit about if someone's interested in learning more about this work uh, and in terms of both that Medium campaign and you know, getting their organization to do something of this nature, where would you point them? Sure. So um, we recently launched our annual report, which is called Conversations About Racial Equity, um, and it is available on Medium. Um, And there is a hashtag, which is hashtag care for the number four results. And uh, so that's a good place to get started about some of those stories. And, And we were focusing there really on the sort of personal stories of staff and others who have been doing racial equity work over the last year and beyond poetry, like very good, uh, really provoking and the whole campaign, just very honest and, uh, important. Mm, Thank you. Important work to read. Yeah. I thought it was really, really well done. And then, and then beyond that, I mean, we we have many more, um, resources on medium as well. And then also on our, on our website, um, and our blog livingcities.org. Um, we have a number of resources. One of the big, uh, things we focus on in all of our work is, is, um, learning in public um, and kind of open sourcing social change, as we call it. And so we share along the way um, as we're going. And there are a ton of blogs and reports and resources about what we think we've learned along the way as we've been working to operationalize racial equity from the inside out. Okay. Well, those links will be available on the podcast website, impactlenderspodcast.com. Brian and Elodie, thank you so much, both of you, for your time today and for sharing the important work that you guys are doing. Thank Thank you, you, Peter. This podcast is brought to you by High Impact Financial Analysis. We help mission-focused lenders build and maintain high-performing impact portfolios through our underwriting, portfolio analysis, and general consulting services. Find out more at www.highimpactanalysis.com and follow us on Twitter at HighImpactFA. The views and opinions expressed on the Impact Lenders podcast are the speaker's own and do not necessarily represent the views of High Impact or other organizations. Until next time, thanks for listening.